0: I'm a big movie person, and one of my favorite movies is The Princess Bride. Anybody seen that? Yeah. And, and you will know that even though the, the primary plot line is this romance between Wesley and Princess Buttercup, most of the time they are either knocked out, passed out, or being dragged around by everybody else who, in my opinion, steal the entire movie. You know, you have the clergy person. Um, that's always fun to do at wedding rehearsals. Uh, but, but my favorite character, who by far has the most quotable lines, is Inigo Montoya, right? Is the most quotable lines. He steals the show, and he more or less helps the plot move along to get to the happy ending. Now, I want to point out that because uh, even if somebody is in a supporting role, uh, he or she may also play a significant and active one, too. And today's character, Titus, uh, is an active character, but somebody who also helps Christianity move forward. Now, if you think about Titus, uh, you may not know much about him. You may know, if you recall in your days of Sunday school, memorizing books of the Bible, that Titus is one of the last books in the New Testament. In fact, it's only three chapters. And so you may be thinking, well, Pastor Ryan, how can we possibly glean anything about this guy from three chapters? Well, he actually shows up in more than just the letter that bears his namesake. In fact, he appears significantly and prominently in two other books as well, 2 Corinthians and Galatians. Now, before we dive into those texts, you'll recall when Paul wrote his first letter to the church in Corinth, these people were all over the place. They were divided, they had lots of issues, and they had quite a testy relationship with Paul. You know, Paul said a lot of things that stirred the waters, that unsettled the people in Corinth. But he always had an enduring love for them. And so when he sends this second letter, 2 Corinthians, he begins talking about how he wants their relationship with God to continue. And here's what he has to say. When I came to Troas to proclaim the good news of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. But my mind could not rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said farewell to them and went on to Macedonia. So Troas was a Roman-occupied place on the upper coast of what we know as Turkey today. And Paul clearly is going there expecting to see Titus. Titus uh, apparently has some role to play in Paul's missionary journeys. And he's an expected uh, presence that Paul is looking forward to. However, Paul is disappointed because he's not there. But we do learn from this passage that Titus is a co-minister of Paul's. He is a partner in ministry with Paul. He is somebody who, along the way, Paul has gathered into his cohort of people who are leading this movement, this Christianity thing that's sort of getting its feet and getting its headway into the world. But with what little we know so far, Paul always wanted the people in Corinth to receive their leadership as a gift, not as a means of taking advantage of them. And Titus plays a crucial role in ensuring that that is possible. Paul goes on to say this, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted in every way, disputes without and fears within, but God who consoles the downcast, consoled us by the arrival of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was consoled about you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that I grieved you with that letter, though only briefly." Titus was the right person at the right time. Titus was that compassionate presence that Paul needed to go into that place in Corinth after some things had been unsettled. And we see in somebody like Titus that God can use ordinary vessels like you and me, like Titus, to ensure peace. Think about whenever a leader changes hands. You know, there's always some sort of way of ensuring that peace is maintained in that time of transition. And Titus was the person that Paul needed. Now, we might also go on to say that Titus is a person of peace. You may remember in the Gospels when Jesus sends out the 70, he tells them to be on the lookout for persons of peace. These are the people who would receive with open arms and hospitality the good news of Jesus Christ. These were the people who would ensure the integrity of that message and that it was maintained. Paul goes on to say that Titus' mind has been set at rest by all of you. For if I have been somewhat boastful about you to him, I was not disgraced. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting to Titus has proved true. As well, You know, this got me thinking a lot about starting churches. Uh, You may know some people who have started churches from scratch. They are called church planters. And the interesting thing about people who plant churches, and Paul very much so was one of these types, is that so much of that leader's DNA is infused in the life of that community. Okay? I'll never forget when I was in seminary, I worked at a church uh, that was a church plant that started in 2012, and we met in a cafe gymatorium every week in an elementary school. Uh, I was the youth leader. Uh, worship happened in the school. Everything else took place in the home, small groups, youth group, mission projects, you name it. But a few years ago, after they actually moved into their own building, uh, which is a huge success in the life of a planter, uh, my mentor, the, the, the pastor, decided he was ready to move on to something new. He had reached a place in his calling and his discernment uh, where he was ready to ask the bishop to appoint him elsewhere. He had finished the work he had been called to for such a time as that. But you may think when you've had the same leader who started the church, who launched that DNA for that community, that it's quite the challenge in finding somebody to come in afterwards. And knowing that Paul himself started many of these churches we hear about in the New Testament... Paul was always primed and ready to ensure he had somebody who could follow after him. Paul was a planter. Paul was a mobilizer. But he was always aware that somebody needed to come in and shepherd the flock after he left. And Titus was the one. And we don't know exactly what Titus said, how Titus engaged with the people, but Titus clearly made an impact on them when they were going through a trying time. We also learn in 2 Corinthians that Titus was responsible for the financial collection at the church in Jerusalem. And you may be asking, well, what is this? So a bunch of the early apostles were entrusted by Paul to raise funds from the community to support the church in Jerusalem and its outreach. And Titus was one of the ones who ensured and administered that very collection. Now, this wasn't something that could possibly happen overnight, But Titus was ready to boldly and faithfully go and ensure that that collection was taken. Here's what Paul says about that. He says, But thanks be to God who put it in the heart of Titus the same eagerness for you that I myself have. For he not only accepted our appeal, but since he is more eager than ever, he is going to you of his own accord. We intend that no one should blame us about this generous gift that we are administering. For we intend to do what is right, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of others. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker in your service. As for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. Paul wanted the people in Corinth to model this same behavior. And Titus was the one who was to ensure they lived out that truth, that they lived out that way of being in the community. Now, Paul also knew that this was not an easy endeavor. It wasn't something that was going to take one person. It was going to take multiple. But we learn that with, with see, in seeing the way that Titus engages in this act, that a disciple is one who invests. You know, a a disciple doesn't simply just accept and believe, but a disciple invests in their faith. A disciple invests in the good news of Jesus Christ. In other words, when we become partners in God's greater mission, God's greater plan, we begin living out the gospel life as God intended. And if we wanted to tie it to our own mission here at Christ Church, we might say that living out the gospel life is about moving from acceptance to willingness. A willingness to not simply listen and believe, but to make an impact, to to make a bold change, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ. Our confirmation class is getting ready to finish uh, their time together, and we'll celebrate them this weekend. And one of the beautiful things to watch in our young people is when they move from a place of having the faith that their parents or their grandparents do and actually arriving at a place where their faith has become their own. And they start counting on their beliefs. They start living it out for themselves. Last week, Angie and I took them to a family shelter in Fairfax and to watch them truly be Christ and show Christ to these children and their families in a non-biased, non-judgmental way was a true transformation, a true willingness on their part to make a difference in somebody's life. Shifting gears, we go to the letter of Galatians. If you were with us last week, Pastor John spoke of a very heightened tension that was taking place at this time, and in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he talks about these different factions of people, ones who believed that Christianity and converting to Christianity was simply a matter of the heart, simply a matter of the faith. But then there were others who said, you still have to follow the Jewish law to the T, including circumcision. That was the big thing on the table. But Titus was there, and Titus' presence there is so critical, so crucial. And I want to tell you why, because this is what Paul says in Galatians 2. But even Titus, who was with me, was not, was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So here you have this living witness, somebody who did not grow up an Israelite, but somebody who in faith truly felt God's call in his life. And the best part is he wasn't made to do anything he didn't want to do. He wasn't compelled to follow the Jewish law. And so when we think about Titus' presence here, we may say that Titus reminds us of the importance of testimony to the Christian faith. And I would suggest to you that when we think about testimony, it's not just a recounting of some significant experience we have of God, but it's how God is at work doing a new thing and how we respond to that. It's that point of intersection. And God was doing a new thing in Titus's life. Titus' own conversion reminds us that we have an impartial God. A God who is not selective, a God who doesn't choose, but a God whose gift of salvation is free for any and all who love him. We hear about this throughout the New Testament. A God whose grace and love knows no boundaries and can't be obstructed by any barrier whatsoever. You know, before we dive into the letter of Titus, There are two things in Christian tradition I want you uh, to consider uh, when it comes to this lesser known figure in scripture. One is this. The book of Titus, the letter of Titus, is often uh, equated with two other letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy. And those letters are traditionally called and referred to as the pastoral epistles. And the pastoral epistles are called that because often they have a lot of instruction and directive for how to order the life Of a faith community. The other thing that's interesting, and if you read Pastor John's community update this week, he raised a question as to what relic related to Titus can be found on the island of Crete. Now, it's in this picture, but does anybody know what it is or what it's supposed to be? (laughs) Yes, Brian Green, it's Titus's head. Uh, But it's the skull of Titus, and it's preserved in uh, this church on the island of Crete, if you, there, right there. And Crete is where we believe Titus was installed as the first bishop of that island off the coast of Greece. And we'll see in his letter that he is receiving that letter in the context of Crete, where he ministered. So let's dive into this letter. You know, what's really cool from the get-go is that Paul identifies and calls Titus a loyal child in the faith, which I think is really powerful and speaks to their friendship. You know, he's almost like an apprentice, somebody who is coming and following suit in the wake of his master. And so here's how that letter begins: "I left you and he's speaking to Titus, behind in Crete for this reason, so that you should put in order what remained to be done and should appoint elders in every town as I directed you. someone who is blameless, married only once, whose children are believers, not accused of debauchery and not rebellious. For a bishop, as God's steward, must be blameless. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or addicted to wine or violent or greedy for gain, but he must be hospitable, a lover of goodness, prudent, upright, devout, and self-controlled. He must have a firm grasp of the word that is trustworthy in accordance with the teaching so that he may be able both to preach with sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. So you'll hear two words in there that may be familiar to you, elders and bishops. So Titus has been tasked with appointing these individuals for specific roles and responsibilities. And so the first thing I want you to understand is that the letter to Titus is a precedent for how to order the life of Christian community. And the first step is by installing people in these positions. Titus his leadership under his leadership ensures that the ministry that the preservation of the gospel can take place through new forms of leadership he ensures that these roles happen that they take place and that people are there to fill them now think about where christianity is at this time you know everything is a movement it's all organic There's no robust theology written down anywhere. Everything has happened through conversations and teaching and traveling, Paul going from place to place and sharing the good news. But what's cool and something that we should celebrate is that this was the moment where Paul realized we need some structure on this thing. We need to put in place some things that will help us and help us maintain what we've started. Bishops and elders, how do we define those? You know, they appear in many today of our mainline Protestant churches. Uh, In our tradition in the Methodist church, anyone set apart to lead church and pastor a church is an elder. And out of that body of elders is consecrated a bishop. And another word for bishop in scripture is overseer. The one who stewards the teachings of the good news of the gospel. And the one who oversees the group of elders out of which they've been called. And so here in Virginia, we have a bishop who's in Richmond, and she appoints each pastor to serve in different places. And the cool thing about it is there's never a church that goes without a pastor. There's always somebody there to pastor the community because of those significant roles, because those roles have merit. And so the other thing I want to point out is that uh, where am I, that the gospel flourishes because of it's a big word, apostolicity, and I'm going to define that for you. So apostolicity has to do with how rooted a community is in the initial life and teachings of the 12 apostles. And so they always looked for people who either had a relationship with the 12 or who were students of the 12 because they believed the closer in proximity and the closer in relationship to them made it a more sound church, a more sound community. Another way of thinking about it is that um, when we are ordained in in the Methodist church, uh, we always see the lineage that goes back to the founder of our movement, who is John Wesley. So when I'm ordained this June, I can see who ordained my bishop and all the way down to John Wesley. And so the idea is that there's a preservation of leadership and proximity to the initial followers of Jesus. The establishment of church offices under Titus sets a precedent for specialized callings in ministry, that people can be called to specific roles and specific tasks. But there's a catch-22, because Titus is told that they have to stand firm in the face of opposition, Because in Crete, there are people who are still not convinced Jesus is who he says he is. There are some who still want to follow the Jewish law to a T, and some who just don't believe anything. Paul describes them in his letter. The letter urges Titus to challenge those who profess to know God, but they deny him by their actions. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You know, think about the world we live in today where we are always on guard in defense of what we believe and why we believe it. And even in some cases, culture and a few small, outspoken, select voices can distort our faith in many ways. You know, there are some people who, when they hear the word Christian, they they think we're all judgmental. They think we're all bigots, that we're just not kind people. But that's a limited, narrow understanding and what Paul is saying here and urging Titus to do is to help the people stand firm in the face of those opposing voices. Because there will be challenges. There will be people who question us in our faith. There are even some in our own faith who question us and our beliefs. I think about going off to college and students who encounter on campus these really rage-filled street preachers who preach a gospel of who's in and who's out. I think of people who use Scripture to demonize others, Scripture to support or rationalize something that they think is right. But Titus was the right person, again, at the right time. Titus was the one who needed to come in and be there for that time. Titus' ministry shows us that a firm faith a firm faith is bound by integrity. That's hard to uphold. That's hard to, to do. Paul says that we are to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly. And then says, declare these things. Exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one look down on you. You know, faith informs many of our ethical decisions that we make. And so it's always helpful to keep in mind that we lean on our faith in order to live a holy Christian life. You know, it's more than just believing. It's about the lifestyle. It's about how we live it. And Titus was the one that Paul wanted them to look to. Titus is the model. Authority in the Christian faith is only fruitful when its leaders model what it espouses. It's hard to follow a leader when they're not modeling the same behavior that you are expected to do. Titus is capable of speaking hard truths in love. And this is the last piece of this letter that I want us to focus on. Paul says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling to be gentle and to show every courtesy to everyone. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the water of rebirth and renewal, By the Holy Spirit. That's a hard lifestyle to lead because we're human. There are going to be times when we disagree with others, where we attack somebody as a person instead of offering constructive feedback to them. How do we uphold that lifestyle? How can we hold each other accountable to doing that? Paul says, Avoid the stupid controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Titus comes in and speaks into a space where they seem to believe that faith is about who's right or about my desires and my wants. But Titus, above all else, shows us that this gospel, the gospel, precludes divisiveness. This is not about us and them. This is not about division at the end of the day. But it's about the unity that only God can achieve so that we can model that in our own lives as we seek to be God's hands and feet in this world. Because as we center and prepare our hearts to gather around the Lord's table today, the one where Christ invites each and every one of us without cost, without asking. That is a place where divisiveness has no place. Will you pray with me? Most holy God, we thank you for the witness in Titus. We thank you for his willingness and eagerness to serve you and glorify you in all things. To be the voice of reason in times of conflict. To be the encouraging voice to the people in Corinth to show the people in the chapter of the Galatians that he in no way came to faith because of something he did, but because of the way you worked in his heart. God, may we seek to live the holy and lifestyle that Titus charges us to uphold so that we can always seek unity in division and peace in chaos. All this we ask in your son's holy name. Amen.